Uh, Romans chapter 1, we'll uh, give you a little bit of background on the, the letter that Paul wrote to the Romans. Paul has never been to Rome. He writes this letter at about uh, 57, maybe 58 A.D., so the church has been in existence for about 25 years. Um, Nero has uh, become the um, Roman emperor about three years prior to this letter being written. Uh, Nero became emperor when he was 16 years old. Uh, it is in uh, 62 A.D. that uh, Rome is burned, and he uh, blames it on the Christians and the, the real heavy-duty persecution in uh, the Colosseum, the Christians being thrown to lions and stuff like that takes place. So there's uh, there's about five years. Uh, this letter is written to the church about five years before the uh, uh, the real, real, uh, well, the most severe persecution uh, takes place in uh, in the city of Rome. Um, Paul is uh, writing this letter from Corinth. He, uh, if we put some of the things that he wrote uh, about uh, to some of the other in some of the other letters that he wrote. He is about to take the um, missions offering that they've gathered. The Gentile churches have gathered up for the saints in Jerusalem. His plan is after he goes to Jerusalem, he's going to go to Rome, and then he wants to go to Spain. But when he gets to Jerusalem, he's arrested and then um, taken captive. And finally, uh, after some time, he does get to Rome. But the next time he comes to Rome, which is about in uh, in, uh, 60 A.D., somewhere around there, he comes as a prisoner. So the letter precedes him about three, um, two to three years, I guess. Uh, and, and these dates are approximate. We don't know exactly. But, uh, but putting everything together, this is the best estimate we can give. And um, uh, Paul is very well known. He writes uh, specifically uh, greetings to 26 of um, different people uh, in the church in Rome. So he knows a lot of people and a lot of people know him. His, at this time that he writes the letter, his fame is spread abroad throughout all the, the Roman Empire, so everybody knows about him. But this is a church that he did not found unless it was founded, and we don't know for sure, unless it was founded by um, um, a spiritual grandchild of his or a spiritual son of his. It's, uh, it's possible that it could be an offshoot of his ministry. But, uh, but Paul writes, to the, writes this letter to the Romans uh, knowing that as much as he's tried in the past, and we'll see that in some scriptures in the first chapter, as much as he's tried diligently in the past to get to them, he hasn't been able to get there. Uh, he's been hindered by one thing or another and uh, other work in other places, and sometimes it's just the devil throwing up a roadblock um, to keep him from visiting this church. He still is the apostle to the Gentiles. And so he finds, uh, uh, he feels it's necessary to send to them doctrine in letter form just as if he was preaching there himself. And so as such, the book of Romans is, is one of the most doctrinally complete books that we have because it's Paul. Um, well, the book of Romans is, is the closest thing that we have to Paul's sermons spread out over some period of time as if he had been there doing the preaching on his own. Um, we can assume that he preached the same thing to every church that he went to. So these, this is the doctrine that he founded the church in Ephesus on. This is the doctrine he founded the church at Corinth on. This is the teaching that he would have done in any of the churches that bore his name or that were a result of his ministry, what I mean by that, um, that we have record of in the, in the New Testament. So Paul starts off, Romans chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. Now in many of the other letters, Paul identifies himself with his ministry team. Here he does not. He identifies himself as the, uh, 
uh, as the author. He doesn't talk about anybody that's with him. He doesn't talk about where he is. He doesn't talk about what's going on where he is or anything like that. This is a, uh, a straight, direct, to the point, here's who I am, here's why I'm writing to you type thing. Now, he's not the one transcribing it. There's a, there's a man that he re- refers to later on in the book that uh, that's transcribing the things that he's writing to them. But literally, he's preaching to the transcriber, and the transcriber's writing it down. So he says, Paul, and notice how Paul identifies himself, a servant of Jesus Christ. This word servant is the word bondservant. It literally means slave. Now, there's, um, it's, it's an interesting thing that several of the writers, Peter calls himself this, Jude calls himself this, John calls himself this, and Paul calls himself this. They all call themselves slaves of Jesus. Now, you may remember that Jesus, in talking to his disciples in John chapter 15, said, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. But they've willingly, these servants of the Lord, these authors of the letters to the church, have willingly made themselves slaves to Jesus. Now, that's the first thing Paul identifies himself as. First and foremost, I'm a slave. Now, he knows what they know about him. He knows what the... What the, the uh, uh, rumors are about him he knows what the the um the reports are about him there are some things that are told about paul around the world that are that are false there are some things that paul is spoken of in in uh, concerning the work that was actually done and so forth paul knows all of these things and rather than identifying himself as to uh, uh in to identify some means of credibility to write to these people he identifies himself first and foremost as a slave to jesus you're going to see why that is in a minute because Paul's ministry, um, it seems to me, this may, not, may or may not be the case with you, but it seems to me that Paul's ministry is a lot different or Paul identifies himself a lot differently than most of us look at him or think or what we think about him. So he says, first and foremost, I'm a slave of Jesus. That's a good thing to be. Not because you're forced to be, not because you can't get out from under the bondage, but because you choose to be. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. Now, I want you to notice the word called. Paul is going to use the word called three times in the first seven verses, three times uh, other places in the book of Romans. The word called means designated and set apart to be something. Now, that implies that there will be action or activity that takes place because of who you are. But it's a designated term. That means you're called and set apart or designated and set apart to be something. Now, notice what Paul identifies, what callings concerning himself and the, and the believers are. He said, called to be an apostle. In other words, I'm made an apostle. It's not that I want to be one. It's not that I chose to be one. I'm made to be one. Paul wrote to the Galatians, Galatians chapter 1, and he said, Paul, God separated me from my mother's womb to preach the gospel. In other words, I was made to be an apostle. I didn't just pick it. God didn't give me a choice or an ultimatum on the road to Damascus to say preach or die. I was made to be this. Folks, you're made to be something. Not just spiritually, but to do something in the earth. There's something you're made to do. If you don't find out what that is, you're never going to be happy. The people that are happy are are the ones that have found out who they've been made to be. The people that are spiritually happy and fulfilled are the ones that find out who they've been made spiritually. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. 
separated under the gospel of God. Now, I want you to notice this phrase. Paul begins verse 1 with the, uh, what, what I believe is the, the, the theme of, of the introductory chapter, chapter 1. And that is the gospel of God, what he calls the gospel of God. Now, we all know gospel means good news. And that's the, the meaning of the Greek word literally means good news. But we think of it, of it, of this phrase as him saying the good news about God. And that's not what it says. Literally, it would better be translated, separated unto God's good news. It's God's good news. It's not good news about God. It's God's good news. Now, it goes on in verse 2. You'll notice in the King James is a parenthetical. He tells us something about God's good news, and that is God promised it before by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now, he knows, that tells us that he knows that they know something about the Jewish law or about the prophets. They know something about what we call the Old Testament. That's a Gentile church. We don't have record of any um, uh, large population of Jewish believers. So he's writing what we would have to assume is general knowledge about the the church coming out of, in one sense, Judaism, or at least having a foundation of the Old Testament prophets and and the law of Moses. So he says, God promised this good news. God's good news was foretold by the prophets. But I want to skip verse 2 and read from verse 1 to verse 3. Because verse 2 is just a little bit of information for us. So he says, Paul, a servant or slave of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto God's good news concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Folks, please get this. The gospel is God's good news concerning Jesus. And everything Paul's going to talk about, every bit of doctrine is going to center around the fact that God's good news concerns Jesus. Now, that's his opening line. That's his opening line. Whatever they've heard about him, whatever reputation he has, he squashes it right away. He says, well, I'm called to be an apostle, but I'm separated to God's good news concerning Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's what I'm all about. It's a good thing to be all about. So he said, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Ten times in the book of Romans, Paul uses the phrase, Jesus Christ, our Lord, or our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul did not casually speak of God, the Father, or Jesus. Every time, God, every time the Holy Spirit inspires Paul to write of Jesus, especially concerning doctrine and who we are in Christ, it's always with the utmost respect. Always. Now, that's not to say that we're not to to have or that Paul didn't have a personal relationship with Jesus, but that it was an arm's length, you know, um, stiff type of relationship. That's not that at all. But Paul recognized with all the things that Jesus had done for him, with the visions and, and the visitations he'd had and so forth, he still used the utmost respect when he talked about Jesus. And he conveyed that when he wrote in the letters to the church. So he said, I'm separated under under God's good news concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. He's going to tell us two things, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. In other words, he was son of man. First thing he identifies about Jesus, our Lord, is he said Jesus was the son of man. And then secondly, verse 4, and declared to be the son of God with power. So he's talking about Jesus, two aspects of Jesus, both his power. 
manhood and his divinity declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness I can I ask you a question what is the spirit of holiness we think of behavior we think the spirit of, of holiness is how we act or how we behave or, or living a right life and, and, uh, and so forth the spirit of holiness is another name for the Holy Spirit so we could say that he was raised from the dead, declared to be the Son of God with power by the Holy Spirit. Why didn't Paul say it that way? Because Paul is trying to get across to us that when we're born again, this God's good news that's called the gospel, this God's good news concerning Jesus, who declared him to be the Spirit, declared him to be the Son of God with power by the Spirit of holiness. That has everything to do with the, what he's going to declare to the church that you're called to. Let's keep reading. Verse 5. Well, I, I'm not sure I finished all of verse 4. Declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Notice he's not talking about Jesus' earthly ministry. He's not talking about Jesus doing miracles on, here on the earth. He's not talking about turning the water into wine or walking on the water or raising the dead or anything like that. He said Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power by the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Now, can I ask you a question? What did Jesus have to do with being resurrected from the dead? How much power did Jesus have to exercise to be raised from the dead? What did Jesus do to affect his raising from the dead or being resurrected from the dead? The answer to all those things is nothing. Jesus was raised from the dead by the power of God, not according to his own works. Jesus lived a sinless life, but by the time he needed to be raised from the dead, none of that mattered. The living a sinless life was so that he was a worthy sacrifice, a holy sacrifice for, for you and me, for mankind. But by the time he was in the earth, the heart of the earth, the lowest part of hell, literally, paying the price and enduring the wrath of God upon all of mankind's sins that was laid on him, that washed on him wave after wave after wave, the scripture says. At that point in time, well, really, it began in, on the cross when Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. In other words, that's where Jesus lost the power to raise himself up. Up until that point, we have to assume that scripture, uh, other scripture that tells us about it is true that Jesus could have called the angels and got him down from the cross. But at the point that he commends his spirit into the hands of God, he's lost all control. He's totally in the hands of God. In other words, his life or his death is dependent on God's power, not his own work. Folks, that's why the Bible says Jesus was the firstborn from the dead. He was born again just like you were. Not according to your own works. Not according to what you did or didn't do. But by the power of God, according to his, God's will. And in our case, our acquiescence to it. Jesus acquiesced to the will of God throughout his whole life and certainly on the cross. In fact, the Bible says Jesus learned obedience through the things that he suffered. Obedience to what? Obedience to the will of God. To stay strong in the will of God, to do the will of God, no matter how much it hurts and no matter how much he was pained by it. So that when he on the cross says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit, it's not in his hands anymore. 
Before then, what Jesus said prior to that during his earthly ministry was true and would have held true. He said, no man takes my life from me. But I lay it down. And if I lay it down, I can take it back up again. He's talking about what he's here on the earth. Once he goes to the cross, once he says, Father, into your hands, I commend my spirit, it's not in his hands anymore. So when he was raised from the dead by the spirit of holiness, that was totally according to God's power, according to God's plan, according to God's purpose, through the fulfilling work of the sacrifice of Jesus and shedding of his blood. And that's exactly the same way you were born again. Your new birth was exactly the same as Jesus. Now, he, we may look at it and think, well, he deserved it more than we did. But, folks, you need to realize if Jesus was the firstborn or first begotten from the dead, that means he was just as spiritually dead as you were. And there is no level of spiritual death. Spiritually dead is spiritually dead. Spiritually dead means you're subject to sin. Even though he performed or committed no sin of his own, he was still subject to sin just like you were. Are you with me? So Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead, by whom, by Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship. Now, Paul is talking about himself. We have received grace and apostleship. He's certainly not talking about we, meaning him and them, because they didn't receive apostleship. But notice the first thing Paul mentions. Paul mentions his own salvation, his own spiritual well-being first before he mentions his ministry gift. We receive grace. In other words, I was saved just like you were, he's saying, and then God made me an apostle. And it's by Jesus. The same Jesus that saved me is the same Jesus that made me an apostle. The same Jesus that enabled me to receive eternal life is the one that enabled me to receive this place of apostleship by whom we have received grace and apostleship for... Obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Notice why Paul said that he was saved and why he was an apostle. For the name of Jesus. Not for his benefit. We think of being saved for our, our own benefit. First John chapter 1 verse 12, I think it is, says that our, our sins have been forgiven for his name's sake. You weren't saved and your sins for, weren't redeemed because of you. It wasn't, it, you got the benefit of it, but it wasn't for you. It was for Jesus. In other words, the work of Jesus was so complete. God's, I don't want to say obligated, but it really, there's a duty to, there's a duty involved. Jesus' work of redemption was so complete. Salvation had to be made available to everybody for Jesus' sake. That's why it's not ever dependent on the individual's work. That's why salvation belongs to serial killers just like it belongs to somebody that commits a minor sin because it's for Jesus' sake. Now, we don't see it that way. We think there ought to be, there ought to be uh, levels of this stuff, and, 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 and that's not the way it works. It's all or nothing. Verse 6, among whom you are also the called of Jesus Christ. Notice that. He says, just as he was called to be an apostle... We have been called or designated and set apart to be of Jesus Christ. You don't belong to Jesus because of what you do or don't do. You belong to Jesus because you've been set apart to that purpose. We work so hard to try to get ourselves in good with God and we're already in good with God. 
And the reason that we don't recognize that is because we fail to recognize, we fail to, to acknowledge who we've been made. And we keep trying to be something that we've already been made. Wouldn't it be silly for me to try to be a man when I've already been made one? Wouldn't it be silly for me to struggle through all my life to try to be something that I've already been made? That's the way it works with Christians. Many Christians never do accept the fact that they've been made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. They keep trying to be righteous. Don't be righteous except that you... Don't try to be righteous except that you've been made righteous. Once you accept that, it becomes a whole lot easier to overcome sin. That's the foundation for overcoming sin. Among whom you are also the called of Jesus Christ to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. Notice the next thing he says is we're called to be saints. We've been designated and set apart as saints. Not to act like saints, as saints. They're not saints because they're living holy lives. They may be, and I hope they are. But they're called to be saints. They're designated and set apart to be saints because of God's good news concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Period. Now, notice something also we skipped over in the first phrase of verse 7. This letter is written to all that be in Rome. Notice it says, beloved of God. The Bible says God loved the whole world enough that he, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. But the Bible calls the beloved those that are in part of God's family. If you've, been, if you've made Jesus the Lord of your life, you are God's beloved You don't have to accept it. And you can struggle and try to work yourself into it. The fact is, that's who you already are. Yeah, Pastor Mike, are you saying God loves the church better than the sinners? Absolutely. He loved us all to the same degree by making Jesus available to us, but he loves those that accept his gift of righteousness, and that makes them his beloved. To those that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace always is identified in Scripture as coming from God the Father. The channel is through Jesus. But God's the giver of grace. First, verse 8, Paul says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. In other words, here's your reputation. Don't know if you know it or not, but everybody talks about the, the, uh, the strength of this church. Everybody talks about the fact that you guys have accepted the reality of the truth that you've been given. For God is my witness, verse 9, whom I serve with my spirit. Now, Paul identifies something right off the bat, and, and we don't know what he knows about their, their belief about spirit, soul, and body. This is primarily a Gentile church. So they wouldn't have any teaching about spirit, soul, and body. So Paul comes right out of the gate. He said, for, I, uh, for God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit, not my flesh, not my mind. He identifies first and for- foremost spiritual things. He establishes a spiritual foundation. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. Here's that same phrase. God's good news concerning his son. That without ceasing, I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if by any means now at length, I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come to you. This is what I was talking about before. Paul is saying, I've been trying to get to you guys. 
I've wanted to come before. If I'd been able to come before, I wouldn't have to write the letter. I don't have any doubt that that's one of the reasons why he wasn't able to come, so that we'd have the letter. For I long to see you, verse 11, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift to the end that you may be established. Now, folks, let me ask you something else about this verse. Is Paul arrogant? Is Paul trying to say, boy, you're lucky I'm writing to you. You'd be even luckier if I'd come to you. Because if I'd come to you, man, I'd touch you and zap you good. We can't, there'd be no reason for us to say that. Paul doesn't uh, exhibit any of that kind of arrogance or, or tone or anything like that in the letter that he writes to the church, any letter that he writes to the church. However, Paul knows who he is. He knows that he's an apostle to the Gentiles. He is the apostle to the Gentiles, the foremost apostle to the Gentiles. Just like Peter's the apostle, the foremost apostle to the Jews, he is the foremost apostle to the Gentiles. He knows who he is. He knows that if he can get to them and minister to them personally, doesn't necessarily mean lay hands on them, but minister to them personally because of the vision, because of the gospel that God has delivered to him through by Jesus himself. He knows that he can establish them more fully in the faith. He knows that he can more greatly ground them in the knowledge of the truth. He knows he knows things that they don't know. He knows not only can he teach them those things, but he can get them grounded and, and uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, well, grounded. He can get them grounded and established in the word of God or in the truth of God's word and the good news of Jesus more than anybody else that they could get a hold of. He knows that he could give them spiritual truth and spiritual equipment. The word gift is the word endowment. It means power. He knows that he can give them spiritual power that they couldn't get anywhere else at that point in time. You might get a second or third hand from somebody that had Paul's gospel and had been taught by him in some other place. Nothing like coming from the source. So he says, I long to come to you that I may minister to you and impart a spiritual gift to you that you may be established. Then he says in the next verse, that would be good for me too. That is that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. In other words, it would comfort me. It would strengthen you, but it would comfort me to know that you're growing in the things of God. Folks, Paul knew the value and the power of the word that he had. We should learn a lesson from that. I think so often we're guilty of trying to back up and make sure that we don't offend anybody and don't say anything that could be misconstrued and something like that. Folks, it's the power of the word. It's not you. It's not me. But God has given us gifts. He's given things to us. And there's no point in whatsoever in backing up from what we know he's given us. Verse 13. Now I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I purposed to come unto you, but was led or hindered hitherto. Here's why I wanted to come, that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. I couldn't, I'm too late to be the founder of the church, but I could certainly have fruit among you, just like I have fruit among every church, every Gentile church that I've been to either started or, or visited after it was already going. He says in verse 14, I am a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and the unwise. What is he talking about? What does he owe the Greeks and the barbarians? What does he owe the wise and the unwise? And did you notice the Jews are not on the list? What's he saying? He's saying because of the apostles' position and ministry that I have, I'm a debtor 
to deliver this good news, God's good news concerning his son to both the Greeks and the barbarians, the wise, educated and the uneducated. He says, so in verse 15, so as much as as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. In other words, because I'm a debtor to to the Greeks and to the barbarians, I've got to be ready to go anywhere that God sends me to go. I'm a debtor to the Gentiles because I'm the apostle to the Gentiles. So I've got to be ready to preach the fullness of the gospel anywhere and everywhere God sends me. And I'm ready to come to you. Verse 16, notice the word for. There are four times this word's going to be used in the next four, three verses. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. What is the good news of Jesus? For it is the power of God unto salvation. Remember this word salvation is an all-inclusive term. It means rescue, deliver, make safe, make sound, and to heal. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He's not saying that's the pattern. He's saying that's the way that it worked. Jesus was sent first to the Jews. They rejected him, so he went to the Gentiles. Third time, verse 17, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. One translation says from faith, such as to those who have faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Again, he makes an Old Testament reference. In other words, he's saying this is the fulfillment. This good news, this God's good news concerning Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament scripture that says the just shall live by faith. What is faith? Faith is simply acceptance of the truth. Acceptance of God's good news. Verse 18 is the fourth time. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Now we'll get to that in a minute. Let's back up to verse 16. Paul said, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. I want you to notice something. When he makes this progression, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation. To rescue, to deliver, to heal, to make safe, to make sound. Anything and everything salvation means. The word salvation means and it means pretty much everything you need. He said the, the gospel, the good news of Jesus is the power of God unto salvation. For therein, in the acceptance of God's good news concerning Jesus, therein is the righteousness of God revealed. That means uncovered. That means exposed. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. In other words, it's saying you're never going to recognize, you're never going to take hold of the revelation of righteousness except by faith. Now, we know that faith is pretty much the antithesis of feelings. So basically what he's saying is you're never going to recognize the true revelation of righteousness if you're waiting to feel righteous. Righteousness is revealed by acceptance of the truth. How do we accept the truth? Well, believe in the heart and say it with the mouth. Righteousness will be revealed in your life to the degree that you confess that you're righteous, not to the degree degree that you feel righteous. Are you with me? Now, I want you to notice Paul's ministry. Here is Paul's ministry in a nutshell. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Paul is not starting a new religion. Paul is not trying to establish, based on the gospel, the revelation of of Jesus himself to what we know of as uh, the, the, the gospel, the good news of Jesus. All that Jesus has done is revealed in his letters. 
Remember Paul wrote to the Galatians, he said, the whole world will be judged by my gospel. In other words, by my revelation, the revelation that Jesus has given me of God's good news concerning Jesus. The whole world will be judged by that. But Paul's not trying to start a new religion. He's abandoned the only religion God's ever had anything to do with, which was Judaism. Well, what did he abandon it for? One simple thing. And that was the message. The simple message of what Jesus has done for us. Everything about Paul's gospel, everything about Paul's letters to the church, everything about Paul's ministry that you can gain information from, from the book of Acts or the letters and so forth. Every bit of information will define one simple thing. Paul's ministry was not some great persuasive technique. Paul's ministry was a declaration of definitive statements about what Jesus has done for us. And that's what Paul says is the power of God unto salvation. It's not your interpretation of Scripture that brings power, brings God's power onto your, situ- onto your circumstance. It is the simple declaration, declaration de- declared first to you for information's sake, and then secondly declared by you by faith. It is the declaration of what Jesus has done for you. Simple statements, definitive statements of what Jesus has done that makes the power of God available. It's not your understanding of the gospel that makes power available. It's the definitive statement of what Jesus has done. Because the gospel is about God honoring the truth about Jesus. Not honoring your faith, although our faith is necessary. Not honoring our strength of spirit, although the Bible tells us to be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. It's not about us. It's about the truth declared about Jesus. That's what Paul says is the power of God. And that's how simple Paul's gospel or Paul's ministry was. Paul went everywhere and told people what Jesus did. Now he did try to persuade the Jews. He'd go into a town and went go first into the synagogue and take the Old Testament scriptures that they knew very well and he'd reveal certain things about how this is talking about the Messiah, this is talking about the Messiah, this is talking about the one that God's going to send. And then after a period of time when they, he has their um, acceptance for being knowledgeable in the Old Testament scriptures, then he says, well, that Messiah I've been telling you about and showing you all these scriptures we're talking about, that was Jesus who was crucified. And that's the point that they all kicked him out. Pretty much the same way it is today. Oh, yeah, there's a Messiah coming. Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, we believe in the Messiah. That's why we have Passover every, every year. Well, that Messiah is Jesus. No, 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 get out of here. We don't want to hear that. Okay. So Paul, at that point, Paul would say, okay, well, I'm going to the people that do want to hear it. I'll go to the Gentiles. And then he started having miracles. And then the Jews had to try to run him out of town because you can't have somebody talking about Jesus having miracles. That really makes it hard for people to believe the Judaic doctrine. Paul's ministry was a very simple declaration of definitive statements about what Jesus has done. That's where the power of God is, folks. That's why confession is so important. Don't try to twist yourself up with confessing what you think about the Bible. Say what Jesus has said, has done. Say what the Bible says Jesus has done. That's where the power of God is. Back to verse 18. Four, here's the fourth four. 
that Paul refers to. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. The word wrath is used in the, uh, uh, the book of Romans 12 times, more than any other letter Paul ever wrote. <clears throat> now, why does Paul start talking first and foremost in the, well, I say first and foremost, meaning in the first chapter. Why does he start off in the first chapter talking about the wrath of God? Well, remember what Rome is all about. Uh, archaeological finds and, and discoveries and, and historic documents that have been uncovered uh, from that time, from Paul's day, identifies that Rome was a place of, of great intellect. They were a place that, uh, that it incorporated the Greek uh, culture to a great degree and the Greek philosophies and stuff like that. They've uh, got their own culture that they've added to it. There are, there are many famous Roman philosophers that are still well thought of and uh, read after in the world today. But they are one of the most evil cities that you could ever imagine. The sexual immorality and the impurity there, homosexuality was rampant, widely accepted. We don't have any record that they, that they had any such thing as gay marriage, but uh, they might as well had. It was, it was openly accepted, and, and uh, nobody was shamed for homosexuality, and uh, bisexuality was a, a, a rampant thing as well. And so the, the, the sin of the city, it was pretty much sin's headquarters of the day. And so when Paul writes to the church, he's not going to tell us about things related to, thing, to, uh, to activities, sinful activities that are in the church. He's not trying to correct anything. He's just trying to show the difference between the revelation of righteousness and the presence of sin in the earth. So he says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Just like the righteousness of God is revealed to the church, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Notice those are not the same thing. Ungodliness is dishonoring God. Unrighteousness is sinful behavior. So he says the wrath of God is revealed against both ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Now, this is a, the, people have a hard time with these, uh, some of these verses, but, um, but Paul's pretty clear on it. He's, uh, he's identifying a simple truth. He'll go on to explain it a little bit further, but let me just go ahead and make the, make the statement up front so that you'll have a, the benefit of seeing it as it comes. Paul is making the statement that everybody that's involved in sin, everybody that has dishonored God with their, uh, not just their lives, uh, lifestyle, but dishonored God with um, a, a hatred, a turning against, a rebellion against God as far as their life is concerned. He said, everybody knows the truth. Now, remember Paul saying this by the Holy Ghost. This is not Paul's idea. Paul is saying everybody that, that is... Um, standing against God, railing against God, um, taking the position that there is no God, atheism and so forth and so on, those that are, that are uh, supporting and uh, advocating evil lifestyle and so forth. He said, everybody knows the truth. Now, folks, if that's true, and I have to believe that it is true because the Holy Ghost in, inspired him to write these things, it's telling us what God's attitude toward deviant sin is. Now, why? And, and here you get people in, in, um, uh, in a quandary about things. How could a loving God send somebody to hell? 
How could a loving God pour out wrath upon people that are, that, that are uh, eligible for the blood of Jesus just as much as you and I? And if you understand this principle, if you understand what Paul starts off with, and he doesn't spend a whole lot of time on it, he just states the facts and moves forward. Because he's not writing to the church for the point, for the purpose of them knowing about the unsaved. He's writing to the church for the purpose of the church in Rome for the purpose of them knowing who they are in Christ. So he starts off and he says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. In other words, he's saying everybody that has turned away from God, everybody that is a God-hater knows that there's a God. Everybody. Now, how could the Holy Ghost know that? Because he's the one that causes them to know. Because, verse 19, because that which may be known of God. Oh, by the way, the word wrath that's used, the 12 times that the word wrath is used in the, in the book of Romans, it's always talking about the day of judgment. It's never talking about punishment here. It's not talking about, uh, you know, consequences here and now. It's not talking about the judgment of God through AIDS or something like that on the homosexual community or, or any of that kind of stuff. That's all man-made doctrine. Every time the Bible talks about wrath, every time Paul uses by the Holy Ghost this word wrath, it's always a reference to the day of judgment. So don't let these scriptures make you think that God's sitting back and, and, and doing evil things to people here on the earth before the time. That's not the case. But there is a reckoning. There is an answering unto. So the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness because that which may be known of God is manifest. Everybody can see it. Now, people may say they don't see it. People may argue why they can't see it. But everybody sees it according to the Holy Ghost. Because that which may be known of God is manifest unto in them, for God has showed it unto them. Here's the Holy Ghost saying, God shows everybody. The most famous atheists in the world, the ones that debate against Christians, God showed them. That's why it's foolish for us to try to show them what God's already shown them. That's why the gospel of Jesus is not about trying to convince people that there is a God. Nowhere did Jesus say, go into all the world and prove there's a God. There's no need to prove there's a God because God's already shown every person on the planet. What are we supposed to do? Preach the gospel. Declare the things Jesus has done for us. That's it. Was that all, Pastor Mike? Well, yeah, that's the power of God. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. I want you to notice that, are clearly seen. Now, people may turn away, but that doesn't mean they didn't see it. They may deny that they saw it to try to justify their own actions or their own choices or whatever, but it doesn't mean they didn't see it. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power in Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Now, here's the reason why wrath on the day of judgment is so critical, because man has no excuse. God has shown every person that he's there. 
man is without excuse. Without a claim of excuse. Even the Godhead. Now, I don't believe that means the Trinity. Trinity is kind of hard to see in some respects. But it's talking about the power of God and the existence of God. Everybody knows. There's no point in trying to convince the world of what they already have been shown by God. And in fact, if you take somebody that says there is no God and laugh and say, well, I know you know there is. It ties them in knots. Because now they think somebody's found them out. So they'll fight harder. So just laugh harder and say, well, I know you already know there's a God. Because that when they knew God, verse 21, Paul's going to talk about a progression. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a little bit ahead of myself, and I'm, I'm way over time. Uh, so let me, I'm going to have to try to run through some of this pretty quickly. But I want to make a couple of comments here so I can uh, save a little bit of time on the back end. Paul is going to go through a list of things, uh, behaviors, attitudes, and, uh, and sins, literally sins. That, uh, that the wrath of God will be poured out upon. Now, it might be interesting for you to compare sometime on your own this list that he goes through with the, the works of the flesh over in Galatians chapter 5. What is it, verse 17, 18, somewhere around there? There's, a, there's three or four verses where Paul talks about the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Some of them are the same things. Some of the sexual sin is the same on the list. Well, what's the difference Paul is going to go talking about the Romans, to the Romans. He's going to talk about things that are taking place all around them because of the attitude that people have taken contrary to or against the, the gospel of Jesus. And so he's going to talk about a progression. And he's going to talk about the difference of, uh, well, the difference between the Galatians 5 list. Over in Galatians 5 is the works of the flesh. Here he's going to talk about the lust of the heart. It's a deeper thing. The lusts of the heart will continue. These evil lusts of the heart that he's going to make mention of are going to continue even after the body is destroyed. So it's a progression of those who have willingly turned their back on the truth that they knew on the inside of them. Now, does that mean it's too late? Does that mean any of these people, it's not possible for them to get saved? I don't think so. I don't think it's too late for them. I think if they turn their back on uh, on their old ways and repented and came to Jesus, then, then they could be part of the family of God just like we can. But Paul is talking about here's how it works. Here's how the progression of evil works in mankind. Because that when they knew God, verse 21, they glorified him not as God. Now, when did they know God? When God showed them. That may have been different for different people at different times in different ways. But there was some point in time that everybody came to the knowledge if not, if, if maybe just for a split second that there was a God and he was available for them. If they failed to take advantage of that and glorify him not as God, neither were thankful but became vain in their imaginations. In other words, it seems to indicate that when, at the point where God shows somebody that he's there and that he's real, they have an opportunity to make a choice. They can either think according to what God has revealed to them which would be faith, or they can think in line with what they want to do. Notice it uses the phrase, 
but they, uh, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations. You know what vain imaginations are? It's anything contrary to God and God's word. Most vain imaginations, and the reason that the Bible uses the word vain, is because it's what we want to think instead of what's true. You know why people rebel against God? Because they think they're smarter than him. Nobody believes the the consequence of sin and goes into it willingly. But everybody that does thinks that somehow or another they can dodge the bullet. That's what vain imaginations are. It's the thought, it's the idea that you can escape what the Bible says clearly is the end of your road. Oh, no, that's not going to happen to me. That's a vain imagination. So it says, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves, I love this phrase, professing themselves to be wise, that's vain imaginations, smarter than God. Professing themselves to be wise, they become fools and change the glory of God the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like unto corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Now, idolatry is kind of foreign to us. We're not used to it yet. We're not used to temples being set up with foreign objects and uh, things like that. But the Greek culture was rife with statues of men that people would worship. And the Romans have not only adopted the Greek culture, they've created their own culture and they've adopted the Egyptian culture or parts of the Egyptian culture that worship calves and, and, and different animals and stuff like that. So when Paul's talking about this stuff, they know that this is right down the street. It might not be for us, but it certainly was for them. And here's the progression that he talks about. Here's where, where men turn away from God. He said, they profess, professing themselves to be wise, they become fools and change the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like, like unto corruptible man. In other words... People stop worshiping God, refuse to worship God, they'll start worshiping man. And then they go from worshiping man to worshiping birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things and other, other animals and stuff like that. He's talking about the progression of equal wickedness in the heart of man. Wherefore, here's a phrase that God's going to use three times, Paul's going to use three times through the rest of the chapter. Wherefore, God also gave them up. God gives them up. In other words, there comes a point where God says, Okay, I showed you, you refused. Now you've gone your own way, trying to do your own thing, creating your own doctrine, your own religion, your own worship, whatever it might be. So I'll let you have your way. God gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts. Here's that phrase I talked to you about a minute ago. The lust of their own hearts. The lust of their own hearts. That's not the lust of the flesh. You can be righteous and commit a sin that's a lust of the flesh. And it doesn't give you up to anything except the consequence of your fleshly action. And God's not the one that gives you over to that. That's just the way that it works. What you, what you plant, you reap. What a man sows, he also reaps. But here it says, through this progression of turning away from God, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. Now, here's going to start talking about sexual sin, which, as I said, Rome was just overrun 
with every sexual perversion that you can possibly imagine. It's kind of like colleges. Only way more out in the open. Who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now, I want you to notice something Paul says here. He said, here's the progression. The progression, and he's identifying specifically to Rome. He's writing to Rome. This is a, is a principle that operates in all of mankind and, and uh, no matter where we are. But specifically, he's saying, here's how it worked and here's what you're witnessing in Rome. And he finally comes to the point where he says, the bottom line is this. Men get to the point where they give themselves up to worshiping all kinds of weird things and it affects their lifestyle, their sexual habits. How does idolatry affect a person's sexual habit? Because it's this progression of evil that the devil will take you through. And then he says this. He says, then the next thing is they worship the creature more than the creator. Now, what does that mean? Well, the creature could be anything. The creature doesn't mean necessarily the idol. The creature could be anything. We see it in our days through the EPA and the Sierra Club and all that kind of goofy uh, radical uh, environmental groups. We got a drought here in California. Why? Because people worship a little three-inch minnow. Can't use the water for humans. Got to save the Delta smelt. So what do they do? They use good water that's available for human consumption and pour it into the bay, San Francisco Bay. Can anybody tell me the, the wisdom in that? How would any, anybody, political party, whatever, whoever it might be, how could anybody justify that? There's only one way that you can explain that, and that is the earth is more important than the people in the earth. And that's what that verse is talking about. So don't think that these things are foreign to us. We see them just under, under different labels. For this cause, verse 26, God also gave them up. Second time it's mentioned. Each time God gives them up, and they get worse and worse and worse. Now, giving them up doesn't mean God gives up on them. It means God says, okay, that's the way you want it. You can have it that way. Why? Because the wrath of God is revealed from heaven to be poured out on the day of judgment, not in the here and now. Do you see how it fits together? For this cause, God also gave them up unto vile affections, for even their women did not change the natural use into that which is against nature. Now, this is talking about homosexuality. It referred to before how they dishonored their own bodies between themselves but now it's going to get specific about sexual activities. And notice it says that it started with the women. Folks, you see that very much in our present day. You have mainstream girl singers that are singing about girls and girls. When did that become just another thing to do? That kind of snuck up on us, didn't it? Didn't used to be that way. Statistically, girl-on-girl sex is more viewed, more um, sought after by women and by men than anything else. Way, way, way over the top than any other type of pornography. It seems to be following the pattern that Paul pointed out by the Holy Ghost. And likewise, verse 27, likewise also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their own lust one toward another, men with men working that which is unseemly, unseemly. 
Conabar's translation says something of, of this. Let me see if I can find it here real quickly. Um, well, I can't find it. Anyway, it says something like this. Doing that which is against... Uh, well, I wish I had it in front of me. It's talking about unseemly, meaning that which is uh, unseemly, meaning... What's the word I'm looking for? It's, uh, what's the word Coney Bear uses? It's, um, um, contrary to the, to the, to the universe, the law of the universe, something along that line. That's not exact, but it's something along that line where it talks about unseemly. It's talking about behavior that is unseemly for God's creation of man. It's talking about behavior that God hides his eyes from. It's not talking about just sin. It's talking about a sin that is like, I can't believe you're doing this from God's perspective. Folks, I got to tell you something. This is my personal opinion on this, but you can judge this for, for whatever you think it's worth. I think homosexuality between men is one of the greatest sins there is. And the reason for that is because it's the devil's triumph over God's creation. Man was created in God's image. He made man, and that doesn't just mean male, not female, but it means mankind. But it says God made man as close to himself as he possibly could. And when the devil can get man having sex with men, that's the devil's ultimate triumph. It's the ultimate of the devil being able to spit in God's eyes saying, look at what I'm doing with your creation. Okay. And likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust one toward another. Men with men working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. In other words, the result, the repayment for this sin will be something that everybody will see openly and acknowledge that is just and righteous punishment. In other words, man's without excuse. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, here's the third time, God gave them over to a reprobate mind. Now, the word reprobate means unapproved. It means since they refused to acknowledge God, God gave them a mind that, would, that was uh, without judgment or void of judgment. Unapproved of God. Doesn't mean unrenewed because you can be a Christian and, and have an unrenewed mind but it means an unapproved mind. In other words, there's something that takes place in the mind, in the soulish area, when you get to the place where you give yourself over to it to such a degree. Now, you may have, I don't know what degree you've had experience with folks, but there are some folks that, uh, that we've uh, uh, encountered and uh, talked to and, and had knowledge of that have been involved in homosexuality. Maybe they're just getting involved. They've just uh, had a few experiences or something like that, and they're struggling with it. They don't know what's right, and they don't know what's wrong. They don't know what to do. They're, they're being pulled by the flesh one way, but they're, they're, they're not sure and stuff like that. Those are people you can rescue. But there comes a point where somebody gives themselves over to it to such a degree that it's like they glaze over on the inside. I have no doubt that there's a, an element of demon possession involved with it, in, at least in some. But this is the progression that the Bible is talking about. This is the reprobate mind. It's something that takes place in the soulish area of man, the mental realm. Now, I, 
I know enough about God to know that you can rescue yourself from that to the point that you give yourself over to it completely. And I have no doubt that the Holy Spirit is warning people and trying to draw them back step by step by step. But there comes a point where they give themselves over to it. It's like inviting the devil in. And that's the reprobate mind that he's talking about. And again, it's all progression. Notice the difference between these things and the lust of the flesh. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. The word convenient is proper. In other words, they get to the place where their conscience is seared over and they have no... um, They have no resistance to wrong anymore. They just give themselves over to anything and everything that there is. Now it tells us, it starts the list. Uh, and these are, these are results of the reprobate mind. Verse 29, being filled with all unrighteousness. This is talking about selfishness enthroned against all rights of others. Fornication is sexual wickedness and impurities. Wickedness is the word that's used to describe Satan and his hosts as the evil one or the hosts of wickedness. The next one is uh, covetousness. Covetousness means literally the itch for more. Uh, The next one is um, malice or maliciousness. This means a desire to injure. Have you noticed how much much more violent things are getting? I mean, what was it several months ago where they had these mobs that would just run up and smash people in the side of the head and stuff like that? What in the world is up with that? Now you've got these shootings, you know, people are shooting cops and cops are shooting other people. And it's, it's like the world's going crazy. It's like it's going haywire. Now you can't tell me that things have all of a sudden just gotten worse than they ever were before. It's the people that have gotten worse. Why? What happened to make things worse? Well, we could go back and look at our country and, and see how people have turned their back on God little by little. And it's, it started a downward trend. But man, the way things have changed just in the last 10 years, it just makes you scratch your head. The next one is envy or being full of envy. Envy is the hate that arises in the heart toward one who is above us, who is what we are not or possesses that which we cannot have or do not choose the path to attain. The next one is murder. Murder is the shedding of innocent blood. I I certainly think you have to include abortion in that. I don't know what more innocent blood you can get than an unborn child. The next one is debate. This literally is the word strife, beating down and wrangling and contention. The next word in the King James is deceit. It's the word guile. It means a bait for fish. And so to catch with a bait is to beguile. In other words, it's the way business is done now. It's bait and switch. Everything about our world is becoming bait and switch. Politics is bait and switch. The next one is, uh, uh, what is the next one? Deceit is beguile. Malignity is uh, taking all things in an evil sense, giving everything an evil connotation. Whisperers, uh, the meaning of that is secret slanderers. uh, The Hebrew word on this means a snake charmer's magical murmuring. The next one is open slanderers, backbiters is open slanderers. 
literally those who speak against and incriminate. Haters of God. This means hateful toward God because they've chosen to hate him. The word means to show as well as to feel such hatred. The next word is uh, despiteful. It's the word insolent. People taking pleasure in insulting others. Proud means arrogant, full of haughty pride toward others. The next one is boasters. The very contrary of Jesus who said, come unto me, I am meek and lowly of heart. And everybody wants to blow their own horn nowadays, don't they? The next one is inventors of evil things. From the days of Cain, city onward, men have progressed in evil until God said in the Old Testament in Jeremiah 19, he said, Israel did evil that came not into his mind. The next one is disobedient to parents. This literally means not being able to be persuaded by parents. The next one is without understanding. This means moral understanding without any means of understanding of divine things, having no proper moral discernment. The next one is uh, covenant breakers. Did I skip one? Covenant, no, I think the next one is covenant breakers. It means without good faith, faithless, bound by no promise or covenant. Without natural affection, it means without affection for kindred. It means the breakdown of the family. Well, we could talk about that for a long time. Uh, the natural next one says Im- implacable. That means without consent to truce, not willing to consent to a truce or cease hostilities. You see that a lot of stuff that's going on in the Middle East. There's no agreement that some are willing to make. Finally, the last one is without mercy. Um, well, we could define this in any number of ways, I guess. Um, it seems like our society has lost any sense of well-being for the other guy. It seems like everybody's trying to take advantage of them, of, of whoever they can for their own well-being. Verse 32, it said, Who, knowing the judgment of God? Now, here's another part. God not only reveals himself, he reveals the judgment of the wrongdoings of their, of their lives. Who, knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. In other words, the threat of judgment is not enough to make somebody turn. Once they've given themselves over like this, it's not enough to know that there's a judgment and try to escape the judgment. They go headlong into it and try to make everybody else do the same thing too. Folks, this is one of the things that you see in this uh, this gay rights gay marriage type thing that's going on in the, in the country. It's not enough to just have, it, well, it used to be, the argument used to be, well, uh, gays should have the same marital benefits, tax benefits and breaks and, and um, rights and so forth that others did. So the conversation was, well, you know, civil unions, you know, we can make civil unions so that the, the same rights are identified. That's not even part of the argument anymore. Now it has to be a change of the definition of marriage. It's not enough for there to be gay marriage allowed in the states. It's got to be something that everybody agrees and everybody consents to and says, I'm for this. And, of course, that's never going to happen. But that's the, that's the agenda. It's not enough just to have what you said you wanted out of this. Now it's got to be something that you force everybody into it. And, folks, that's what the devil does. The devil starts off tempting you and he ends up pushing you.
These are the things that Paul starts off with. Now, why does he do that? He's going to tell about the righteousness that is revealed because of the God's good news concerning Jesus. But first, he has to identify, if he's going to talk about the Savior and the benefits of salvation, he first has to identify man's need for salvation. And that's what he's doing in the last part of chapter 1. He's showing here's why Jesus came to the earth because man had been given over to the devil in such a degree that all of these things are taking him step by step by step, one step closer to hell every day. But thank God for Jesus. Amen. I love verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. God's good news concerning Jesus for it is the power of God unto salvation. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it's true. We thank you for all that Jesus has done for us, all that he has made us to be. Father, we ask that during this series you would open our eyes to who we are and what belongs to us like we've never seen it before. Help us, Father, to accept, to choose to accept who we've been made by the wonderful sacrifice of Jesus. We declare, Father, that we have been made righteous by the precious blood of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. No matter how we feel, no matter how we stumble, thank you that we've been made the righteousness of God in you. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.